Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 50th episode of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, a podcast all about the subject of antinatalism created by antinatalists. My name is Amanda Oldfansukanik, formerly known as Forever Wolf Films on YouTube. And I'm Mark J. Maharaj, also known as Question Mark Philosophy on YouTube. And today, we're speaking with Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pretoria, author of countless book chapters, encyclopedia entries, and journal articles, including Does the Lack of of cosmic meaning make our lives bad, Thaddeus Metz. Uh, welcome to the Exploring Antinealism podcast, Thaddeus uh, Metz. Uh, may I call you Thad? Thad is great. Terrific. Right. So let's start out with the most basic question in your own words. Uh, who is uh, Thad Metz? Hmm. Uh, um, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, at least if that's understood to be asking what I essentially am. Um, of course, I take the question philosophically in that way. Um, uh, uh, today, I'm the guy wearing a certain jacket and talking to you, but, but that isn't essential to me. I, I could have uh, still been Thad Metz, but not uh, wearing something different and speaking to somebody else. Um, um, I used to, for a long time, uh, uh, hold a, a typical Western view of personal identity. Um, according to which I'm essentially a mind, uh, some kind of chain of mental states over time that refer to one another, cause each other. Um, and so from this perspective, to tell you who I am, I should recount the contents of my mind uh, over many years. And I suppose that would involve me uh, telling you about my two children uh, who are soon to be 14 uh, and 18. Uh, I tell you a lot about the philosophy I've done for, for some decades. Um, I would tell you about uh, the crime dramas I watch. Um, I would tell you about the way I see people uh, typically as having potential and uh, exhibiting beauty, uh, being worth helping. Um, but I've lived in uh, South Africa now for more than 20 years and have become uh, familiar with um, uh, indigenous sub-Saharan cultures. And there, the conception of personal identity is different. And I've been trying this view on for size and um, trying to make sense of it and, and give, it a, give, it a, give it a good shake. And it's typical in African philosophy to think that what makes us essentially who we are isn't a matter of something internal to us, like a mind or a brain or a soul, but rather our relational properties. Um, um, so if we applied this, this kind of view to something like water, what makes water water by this view isn't the fact it's H2O, but rather that it plays a certain role in an ecosystem. And if we, uh, if we take that kind of framework to persons, uh, then what makes a person essentially uh, who she is as distinct from other persons is the role she plays in a, in a society. Um, uh, and there's something compelling about that. Um, uh, if we were to apply it to Metz, to me, then I should tell you that uh, I was a guy born to uh, some parents of largely German and Austrian descent. Um, I was reared in an American society, uh, the Midwest for the most part. Um, and for the past 20 years or so, I've been a guy living in South Africa. Uh, I've got a girlfriend, two sons, two cats, and about 10 postdocs and postgrads to look after. Uh, those are my relationships. Um, so, uh, on, yeah, that gives you a bit of who I am, essentially, at least on two different accounts of personal identity. How did you even, how did you get involved in philosophy in the first place? 
Um, I was an angry young man in my teenage years and uh, a political activist. Um, uh, so that was part of it. Um, I was active in animal rights movements, uh, anti-apartheid movement, anti-imperialist movement. That was in the 1980s. Uh, uh, and so we had Ronald Reagan and, and his forces to, to combat. Um, so that was part of it. And I was also uh, a member of the debate team in high school. And so uh, their uh, policy issues were, were the order of the day. Uh, and I happened to have a, a fairly uh, left-wing and philosophically in inclined uh, uh, debate coach. And so it was, it was sort of the, the confluence of, of activism and debate that led me to, uh, uh, to do a lot of political philosophy in, in my teenage years. Um, and then it continued into, uh, uh, in, into uh, varsity. And how about spe uh, specializing in uh, meaning of life? Yeah, that didn't happen until later. Um, um, so I had, uh, you know, I didn't do that until I failed to publish anything from my doctorate. <laughs> right, so uh, I'm, I'm uh, not a bad publisher these days. Um, but initially, it took me five years to learn how to publish a journal article. Um, and I never did publish anything from my doctorate. And then once I finally did figure out how to write a journal article uh, and, uh, you know, sort of worked up the core uh, chapter of my uh, dissertation, uh, an editor of a, of a good journal wrote back and said, yeah, it's a pretty good argument, um, but the field has moved on and we're just not that interested in it. Um, and so I had to, you know, I took his advice more or less and had to move on. Um, um, and I recalled at that point a talk that Susan Wolf had given um, at the philosophy department uh, where I was doing my PhD, and she had addressed the meaning of life in an analytic way. Um, uh, and the analytic method was familiar to me, but it being applied to the topic of meaning in life, uh, that was new. Um, uh, and I thought that was really interesting uh, and hadn't been done very much. And so in 1998, I think it was, 99, um, uh, I wrote my first paper uh, uh, trying to uh, follow in, 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 in Susan's footsteps a bit. Thad, may I ask, why are you or are you not an antinatalist? Um, uh, I'm not an antinatalist. Um, so if by antinatalism, we mean the view that it's, it's categorically or nearly always immoral to create new human beings because of the harm that um, uh, that would befall them. If that's what we mean by antinatalism, I'm, I'm not uh, an antinatalist. Um, um, I've got two kids <laughs> and I think I'm reasonably consistent in, in, in my views, uh, have some integrity here. Um, so if I thought it was wrong to, to have kids or a grave wrong to have them, I, I don't think I would have had them. Um, I guess, I mean, I think the main reasons I'm not an antinatalist is that um, I acknowledge uh, the serious harms that uh, many people uh, face, and we all face, uh, uh, you know, the harm of, of old age and uh, uh, debilitation and death. Uh, hopefully, a number of us will escape uh, much else on the way to that end. It's not a good end. Um, but um, uh, I acknowledge uh, uh, these harms, but I think uh, that there are um, uh, other things about life that make it worth 
producing um, and sustaining. And so there are two, uh, two kinds of goods that I think um, uh, make it all things considered justifiable to create new human lives or new lives of persons at least. One is the dignity that I believe uh, many human persons have. Um, so when we're talking about antinatalism, normally we're talking about uh, a low quality of life on the part of human beings that would make it impermissible to create them. But if we're talking about dignity, uh, then we're talking about the value of life itself or the value of a certain capacity that comes with the life of a human person. Um, and so I think, uh, uh, I think uh, typical human persons have, an, have a dignity. They have a superlative non-instrumental value that demands respect. Um, and that is a value that isn't, it's independent of a person's quality of life. Um, and I think uh, we would be doing humanity an injustice if we let it go extinct. Um, so part of the reason to procreate is to continue the species, um, is, to, is to create a, a, a being that has the most uh, intrinsic value uh, of anything on the planet. That's, that's one consideration. The second one is that I think there is a cluster of goods that don't have to do very much with, um, with well-being. Or, and woe, or, or harm and benefit, or pleasure and pain. Um, and these goods, I think, are particularly uh, worth choosing um, uh, and uh, can make uh, sense of why it can be reasonable to expose a being to harm, uh, supposing it can expect enough of these goods. So I'm thinking of things like meaningfulness, beauty, creativity, virtue, love, knowledge, I think each of these things is, is desirable for its own sake. Um, they don't necessarily make the person who exhibits a meaningful life or, 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 or creativity, they don't necessarily make them happy. Um, but these are really uh, uh, important parts of a human life and make it worth living. And so, you know, in preparation for this talk, I thought about, well, what is it about my kids um, that I find so compelling? And, and part of it is the fact that they are persons. Um, uh, that gives them a dignity or some kind of worth that the cats in the house don't have. Um, but the other thing is often when I look at them, I don't, um, you know, I don't think to myself, oh my goodness, it's, it's so terrific, they're not in agony. Um, or isn't it wonderful they're feeling joy? I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes I have these reactions and I'm glad they're not miserable and, and that I'm glad that they are happy. Um, but but at least as often, more often, I think, is there are other kinds of things or aspects about their life that I think are special. Um, so my older boy, uh, Mikhail, uh, at 17, is a pretty good philosopher. And I was talking with him about a paper recently. I had an idea, and he detected ambiguity in the idea, drew a distinction between two ways of interpreting it. And not only that, came up with mathematical algorithms to describe each one. Um, and he'll probably be, be a co-author of, of a journal article I'm writing uh, as a result. Um, you know, I think that's really cool. Uh, there's some, I'm proud of him for that. I admire him for the insight. Um, and none of that really has to do with happiness or, or unhappiness. It's something else. Uh, it's creativity. It's, it's insight uh, that I'm prizing there. 
And then when I uh, look at my younger son who does uh, non-representational artworks, right? He'll get an image in his head and he'll come out in what he draws at times. And they're beautiful otherworldly patterns that he creates. And again, it's not a matter of him being happy or avoiding unhappiness. Uh, that makes me think that's really neat <laughs> and something special uh, to behold. Um, it's roughly his creativity and his, his creation of something beautiful uh, that, that uh, uh, makes me think, gosh, uh, I'm really, uh, it's one reason I I'm really glad uh, to have uh, helped create this, this individual. Uh, so that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but the, the short answer is, again, there, there are two kinds of goods uh, uh, that can make it justifiable to create people uh, beyond, that, that I think often compensate for the harms that they're going to face. Uh, dignity on the one hand, and then sort of non-welfarest goods of meaning, perfection, virtue on the other. Uh, so in 2012, uh, the South African Journal of Philosophy, you were part of this, uh, I don't know if you call it a symposium, but um, they had a whole issue on antinatalism. How did you get involved in that? Were you, was it, was there just like a call for papers? Because I, uh, I think Boonin, Weinberg, um, Ashil Singh, Belshaw, and Benatar replied to a lot of this. But I remember you, you're, you were the, like, the... The starting of that of that journal. Yeah, I issued the call for papers. Um, oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> um, and it was uh, in part a result of my interest in the meaning of life, um, and it was in part wanting to do my doctoral student at the time, Ashil Singh, a favor. Um, he was doing his PhD on antinatalism, and I thought, okay, well, let's let's put together a workshop of, of antinatalists. Um, I'll invite senior colleagues like Benatar and, and uh, uh, Weinberg and the like, um, and we'll put them into conversation with uh, uh, Singh and, and other more junior folks. Um, and so what initially happened is, is we had a two-day workshop devoted to uh, antinatalism where people presented papers and then we uh, uh, revised the papers in light of uh, comments received at that workshop and, and published the special issue. So that's the background. Hey, thanks. Um, no, I didn't realize I didn't that. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, in a previous interview, and I, I forgot which one it was, it might've been the one you did with uh, Mark and Jason on the brain and the vat. You mentioned that your view um, on the meaning of life is Aristotelian and Kantian. Do you remember that? And if you do, like, could you expand on what you meant by that? So I think, um, yeah. So I think if we're talking about what makes a life meaningful, um, most of us, what we mean by that is we're, we're interested in what makes uh, a life merit pride from a first person perspective or admiration from a third person perspective. Um, so a life is more meaningful roughly the more it's, the more pride worthy it is or the more admirable it is. Um, I don't think that's all of it, but that's an awful lot of it. Um, um, and typically, uh, what people think uh, uh, confers meaning on a life or makes it worthy of pride or admiration uh, are the good, the true, and the beautiful. Those are some classic, uh, relatively uncontested sources of meaning. So when it comes to the good, we're thinking of beneficent relationships like love, justice, and charity. 
When it comes to the true, we mean some kind of knowledge or intellectual inquiry. So it could be a matter of wisdom or self-knowledge, education, making a discovery. And then the beautiful is a matter of uh, roughly being creative uh, or apprehending uh, creativity. So uh, uh, making works of art or music, uh, listening to them, uh, uh, making a garden or enjoying a garden, those kinds of things. So for most people in the field, uh, uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful are, are uncontested sources of meaning. And what I think uh, those things have in common by and large is that they involve the exercise of intelligence or rationality um, in certain ways. Uh, that seems to me to be the common denominator between the examples um, uh, I just listed. Um, and it also seems to be the common denominator amongst classic cases where the field is inclined to say there's an absence of meaning, right? So if we take this case of Sisyphus or the case of the experience machine, right, those are the two most recurrent examples of meaninglessness uh, over the past 50, 60 years. Um, and at least you know, on the face of it, uh, what's absent from them is uh, somebody doing, you know, doing something <laughs> uh, that requires some effort uh, or some calculation or some planning or some complex, intricate exercise of intelligence. Uh, Sisyphus is just pushing a rock. Uh, uh, the person in the experience machine is just sitting there being passive recipient of sensations uh, uh, in his or her brain. Um, so I think we can multiply the cases, um, but the short story is that uh, I hold an Aristotelian or Kantian view in the sense that what I think is central to what makes a life meaning is this sort of positive exercise of our intelligence in certain ways. You hold an objectivist view, right? Mm, yeah, and that, that, that's the point of contention between you and Benatar. Well, he, it's one sort of, I mean, he thinks there are two different kinds of meaning. He thinks there's a subjective meaning on the one hand and an objective one on the other. Um, and I think, I mean, I think he's committed to saying the objective one is more important, at least if he wants certain of his arguments to work. But uh, there are at least a couple places in his work where he simply says, well, there are two kinds of meaning. There's subjective and objective. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm willing to, to sort of count the subjective approach as a genuine kind of meaning, um, or at least it's not going to count very much for me. Do you collaborate with other philosophers of aesthetics uh, to accompany the beauty uh part that you mentioned? I haven't. In fact, it's, I think, a weak part of my training is I haven't done that much uh, 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 when it comes to philosophy of art and aesthetic theory. I would like to have the time to do more. Yeah, you're, um, you produce uh, quite a lot of work. Uh, when I was looking at uh, Phil papers. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think you have, correct me if I'm wrong, at, at least from my search, you have two uh, upcoming books in the new year, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think this year you came out with uh, the conversations with Benatar. Um, mm -hmm. And then in 2019, and this was, I have not uh, read this book, but it was, uh, let's see, God's Soul and the Meaning of Life. Um, mm -hmm. What was the, so one of my questions was, are you a theist? But when I read uh, your entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy it doesn't appear that way. Um, so was that book just to like uh, explain uh, 
uh, a spiritual, a theistic, a supernatural account of meaning of life? I, I, I haven't read it, so I'm not familiar with that. No, that's, that's fine. Um, I'm a little bothered that you were able to pick up I'm, I'm not a theist from the Stanford entry because, right, that's well, supposed I've read to your papers neutral. too, so it's supposed to be neutral. <laughs> no, no, so I've read, I've read the entry, I've read your papers, so like, you know, it's just oh, a, an accumulation of things, yeah. Um, the book you mentioned, God's Soul and the Meaning of Life, that, yeah, was, was published a couple of years ago, um, was a follow-up to my first book on the meaning of life, which was back in 2013. And in the first book in 2013, um, uh, uh, at that stage, the debate was between roughly a naturalist who maintains that God and the soul are not necessary for meaning in life, and then a supernaturalist or religious view that said, no, they're necessary uh, uh, for meaning in life. And if God and if God and a soul don't exist, then our lives are meaningless. Um, you know, for at least a couple few hundred years, uh, that had been the dominant debate in, in Western philosophy. But things changed um, uh, not long after I had sent um, uh, uh, submitted the final uh, version of the book to the press. And over the past uh, 10 years or so, there's been a shift that I see uh, in the debate with most religious thinkers now accepting that some meaning would be possible in a world without God and the soul. Uh, but the religious folks respond, uh, okay, uh, uh, even if we live in an atheist world, some meaning is possible. We can have some kind of good true and truth and beauty. Uh, to put it roughly. But if you want an ultimate meaning or a great meaning, uh, that can come only with the presence of God and a soul. Um, and that kind of position has been explicit amongst many uh, religious thinkers uh, recently. And so I wanted to, uh, to understand uh, those positions um, and to critically explore them uh, in ways that I just didn't uh, engage with them in the first book. Okay, great. Um... And, and I want to correct myself, it was actually uh, a draft of an upcoming paper that I got the sense from uh, that you, uh, yeah. Good. <laughs> um, also, I wanted to highlight, I think there was a publication, I'm not sure if it's a book or a journal uh, with um, Masahiro. Uh, yeah, was that, that was this year, right? Um, uh, 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 Prof. Morioka had edited a collection of essays devoted to my first book, and that was that was a few years ago now. Um, okay. So I'm not sure. Was your first book, was that an expansion of your 20, uh, 2002 paper? In some ways, but again, the 2002 paper was supposed to be a critical survey, right? If you're talking about the paper that appeared in Ethics, yeah. It was supposed to be a fairly neutral, you know, overview of the debates. Of course, some opinion about, you know, here, this is a weakness and this would be interesting to pursue. But the, the 2013 book, Meaning in Life, is, is opinionated. It's, it's, it advances a specific conclusion um, um, and isn't uh, meant to be primarily a survey, but, but a mounted defense of what we mean by talk of meaning in life, uh, uh, what the conditions for a meaningful life are, why we shouldn't be nihilist, uh, nihilistic about the view. Um, it's, I defend a position uh, in, the, in the 2013 book. Okay, thank you. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, outside of Wikipedia, the word antinatalism is still to this day not included or defined 
by any known dictionary in the world in any language. Um, so I'm curious, uh, uh, how do you feel that antinatalism should be defined? Um, yeah. Look, I think however we define it, we want to distinguish between two different kinds of claims. On the one hand, we want to um, uh, 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 have a claim about whether a life is worth living or uh, has a certain amount of harm in it. Right? There's some claim about value. We want to evaluate uh, the quality of life, broadly speaking. Uh, um, and so one way to understand antinatalism would be the claim that, that life isn't worth creating, uh, for example. There's not enough good in it to, to be worth the bad. Um, uh, uh, but that's different uh, from another kind of claim that we also often associate with antinatalist debates, and that's a moral one, namely that it would be impermissible um, uh, if we were to uh, create a human being, um, uh, given uh, the fact that the good, uh, the bad uh, uh, outweighs the good, or the good uh, uh, isn't worth the bad. Um, so I think antinatalists uh, uh, typically uh, address both kinds of claims, but they need to be kept separate. They need to be kept distinct. Um, uh, uh, I think the primary, the ultimate one is a moral claim. I think ultimately, you know, what would structure much philosophical debate uh, would be the claim that antinatalism is the view that it's immoral to create uh, new human lives. Um, for a particular reason, namely that they're not worth creating. Um, but it's the moral, uh, or at least typically for that reason, but it's the moral claim that I, I see as definitive. Do you have any thoughts about the imposition argument? Because I mean, we can, we can, are, are, we can have all kinds of ideas ourselves of like, is this, a, is this a good life to put somebody in? Is this a, you know, will, it, will there be enough meaning? Will there be enough this for that? But it, it doesn't really speak to the experience of the actual person you're creating. So I'm, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about sort of the imposition argument and you know the experience of the child that you're gonna create is really what is, has the most weight that it's not really something that should be played with because they might not find all of these same, you know, signals of meaning that the procreator is. They might not. Um... You know, but the philosopher in me thinks, uh, uh, well, they would be mistaken. <laughs> um, um, I'm, I'm really quite uh, drawn to the idea that um, we can uh, be more or less justified in claims we make about the quality of a life. Um, and that you know, some claims are more reasonable uh, than others. Um, you know, I've been thinking about uh, uh, the meaning and value of life for some 30 years. Um, maybe I'm wrong, I'm not infallible, I'm not an oracle, um, but for all I can tell, there are certain aspects of a life that make it desirable and certain aspects that make it undesirable. Um, uh, someone might disagree and, and the child I uh, created might come to disagree. Um, uh, but the issue, I think, wouldn't be the mere fact of disagreement. It would be, I would be much more, uh, given much more pause um, if 
uh, the child I'd created reasonably disagreed, had good reason to disagree um, with these kinds of judgments that I hold, uh, then I'd be given, then I'd be given much more pause. They'd have to make an appropriate argument for you. They would have to give me an argument. That's right. <laughs> right. But just simply holding a different view wouldn't be enough. In the SCP entry, uh, you wrote, despite the venerable pedigree, it is only since the 1980s or so that the distinct field of the meaning of life has been established in Anglo-American Australian philosophy on which this survey focuses. And it is only in the past 20 years that debate with real depth and intricacy has appeared. Two decades ago, analytic reflection on life's meaning was described as a backwater compared to that of well-being or good character, and it was possible to cite nearly all the literature in a given critical discussion of the field, and then you cite your paper, uh, neither is true any longer. And I was curious, this seems odd, um, that the, the, the field of philosophy, that this would be relatively new. Um, and I was just curious why that would be the case, because mm. it kind of reminds me about procreative ethics and even the philosophy of death. It's odd to me that um, this wouldn't be so uh, talked about, um, and, and especially the meaning uh, of life. It seems like that, that this would have a way longer history. Um, so how come it's like uh, 20, 30 years? Look, I mean, in, in some ways, it's got a very long history, and we can find explicit discussion of, you know, the absence of meaning in life in, in the Hebrew Bible, um, uh, in Ecclesiastes, for example. Um, so I didn't want to suggest that it had only been discussed, and you know, recent until recently. It's it's got a long history. Yeah, and I don't um, want to like denigrate the philosophy of death thing, like that's Epicurus and 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 stuff like yeah. that. But but exactly. I meant like more contemporary work engagement, I guess, is what we're both talking about. I think that's right. Um, so, you know, for, but I, I do think it's true that that meaning as a distinct field, as a value that's taken as its own, something separate from well-being and morality, right. that's new, um, uh, uh, relatively speaking. Um, I'm not enough of a intellectual historian, I think, but I mean, one, one plausible, um, one plausible explanation would be the influence of, um, of Western moral theorists. And so if we look at the utilitarians on the one hand and the Kantians on the other, uh, for all their differences, um, they do tend, as Susan Wolf has pointed out in some of her works, uh, to divide uh, uh, values and norms into two. Right? On the one hand, we've got self-interest, or happiness, uh, where that's a matter of either pleasure or desire satisfaction. And then on the other hand, we've got right action or morality, which is a matter roughly of regulating uh, uh, the degree to which people get what they want or have their, uh, have their self-interest satisfied. That kind of picture of two uh, kinds of norms or values uh, held sway over Western philosophers for a couple hundred years. Um, and it really wasn't until uh, you know, uh, the 1980s or so that philosophers were able to really break out of that and say, look, there are other, <laughs> there are other goods in a life um, um, uh, beyond morality and beyond well-being. Uh, there are also other bads. Um, um, and so there's been a flourishing, I think, in the field since then. 
Um, uh, and uh, to the point where we do have distinct fields of philosophy of meaning in life and philosophy of death. To go back to the antinatalism uh, argument, um, just referencing the 2012 journal, I remember Ashil Singh's uh, paper, I think dealt with the consent argument, right? And I was curious, what do you feel like intuitively, uh, I'm not looking to debate the technicalities of it, but what do you feel are, um, given that these there are multiple arguments um, for this proposition, what do you feel are the strongest and weakest ones? Because um, I have my own personal opinion, but um, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, um, I, I mean, the consent argument is interesting. Um, I think the worry I've got about it is that uh, normally if we do something against somebody's will, uh, there's already a will there <laughs> um, uh, to be overridden. Um, and procreation is a very, it's a very strange case where we don't already have a will, we're creating a will, we're creating a person in the first place. Um, and so at least, you know, a, a natural explanation of why it's normally wrong to do something to somebody without their consent is that they've got a will and, and they don't will it, or, or they, you know, it's not consistent with their will. Um, but if there's no will in the first place, uh, it's not so clear that uh, this this moral criticism applies. So I, you know, I I take the argument seriously. Um, I hardly think this is the last word about it. But I personally find more strong, uh, uh, um, more compelling the uh, the position that uh, Gerald Harrison had advanced in that that 2012 collection of the South African Journal of Philosophy, um, and he suggests there um, that if we've got a duty uh, to do something, um, then there would have to be a victim if we failed to do the duty. And that's a general intuitive principle uh, that, that looks, looks pretty look right in, in many, of, uh, many of our cases. If I fail to do my duty, well, then there's somebody who's been done an injustice, somebody we can point to. Um, and he runs with that. And he says, well, look, if we, if we take that for granted, um, um, uh, then uh, uh, it looks like um, uh, I don't uh, fail to do my duty if I don't create anybody because there's no victim. Um, so it can't be a duty uh, of mine to create anybody. Uh, if I don't do the duty, there's no victim. On the other hand, um, uh, if I do uh, procreate, um, uh, I can foresee that the person is going to suffer harm and I've got a duty not to impose suffering or harm on others. Um, and so I would be violating a duty if I procreated because I can point to the victim, the one created. Um, uh, I hope that's a, a, a good enough summary of Gerald's, uh, Gerald's interesting argument in that paper. Um, and what I think it forces us to do is to think about whether it is possible to have a duty to do something, um, even if we violate the duty, there is no victim. So I think there might well be, or at least I'm open to the idea of that. Um, we have duties to humanity in the abstract, um, um, that uh, if human persons have a dignity, uh, we've got an obligation to keep the human species going, um, and perhaps in indeed to do our part uh, to keep it going. Uh, that doesn't mean that the amount of procreation going on in the planet is justified by any means. Um, I think there probably is too much for all sorts of reasons. Um, but as far as antinatalism goes, um, I'm open to the idea that as a way of showing respect uh, for the superlative value of human persons, we have to create some, at least from time to time.
Whereas even if we don't create them, there's no specifiable victim. The continuation of the species for meaning reminds me of Scheffler. I don't know if that's accurate or not. Um, is it was that? Well, it's been a long time since I read read that, but like, is that sort of similar to his view as well? Well, in this case, I'm arguing that uh, we have a moral obligation to continue the species. Um, and if I remember Scheffler, he doesn't put it in terms of morality. His point is rather that if the species went exist, uh, extinct, uh, there would be less meaning in our lives. Right. Yeah. Uh, so those are two different, two different kinds of claims. I'm sympathetic to that claim as well, although I think my reason uh, for thinking so is different from Scheffler's. So most of the time Scheffler in that book suggests that uh, the meaning in our lives depends crucially on the existence of future generations because um, a lot of what we do is designed to help uh, people and improve their quality of life down the road. Um, and I just think uh, some people are in a position to help future generations, but, but relatively few of us. Um, and that can't be the real compelling or at least the widespread explanation of why the existence of future generations might be essential for meaning in many of our lives. Uh, we're not all going to be curing cancer um, um, or solving the climate crisis. Um, uh, you know, most of us are going to have very insignificant effects on future generations. So what I think explains uh, at least my sense, or at least I, th I think many people's sense of why they want the species to continue um, and they feel their sense of meaning draining if they knew the species would die out in a generation or two. I think what's going on is we identify with future generations. It's not that we're in a position to make them better off um, or to protect them from harm. It's rather that our sense of selves, for many of us, are bound up with the continuation of the species. Um, um, we, yeah, we are bound up with psychologically um, uh, the accomplishments and uh, the well-being of, of future generations, uh, even if we're not going to have any effect on them. And so if we knew the species was going to die out in, in just one or two generations, um, uh, it, it impinges our sense of self. Um, uh, uh, it's a bit of an attack on, on who we are um, and what we value. Would it be worse if we found out in two generations the world is, you know, just consumed by war and Holocaust after Holocaust. And would that be better? Because we <laughs> yeah. could find some meaning in that. I mean, you talk a little bit about a version of this in, in the paper that I think we'll speak a little bit about. But I mean, in your mind, is Mars a horrible place? Because there's no there's no human there's no human beings on that. There's no life on that. There's no meaning there except what we right. can project on it. So right. is if we were to go extinct, there's no one that's going to there's nothing in the universe that's going to cry about it. I mean, it's no. sad for us because we're psychologically addicted to the projection of that meaning that we give to future people, but we will go extinct. I mean, it, 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 is, it is more than likely to happen at some point, no matter what we do, whether it's through antinatalism or, or what, that this isn't going to last forever. Every, every meaningful piece of art we create every, you know, and it's very, it is sad. I mean, even though I, you know, it is my position, um, I, there's a tremendous amount of sadness about that there. But my thing is that that's sort of all it can really be. I mean, it's it, the, the, the better thing is that that future projects a future that where everything is out of harm's way. 
And that's, mm. that's a positive thing. Look, I think that's fair. I do think um, uh, we should want future generations to exist only if their quality of life is going to be good enough. I mean, there has to be some kind of floor or a minimum. I accept that. Um, I think my standards are perhaps lower <laughs> uh, than yours or those of many antinatalists, um, right? So I think the fact of uh, that these are beings with a dignity matters um, um, uh, and the fact that they're capable of, of non-welfarist goods like love and knowledge and creativity, I think that matters. But they also need to, I do think it also matters um, uh, that they be able to avoid uh, you know, uh, severe amounts of pain um, and illness um, and degradation. Um, and if those were unavoidable, then yes, I accept that all things uh, considered, it would be preferable for if that were the only future was misery and we couldn't uh, uh, get above that floor, then yes, it would be preferable. Um, but that's just a matter of saying that um, uh, there can be fates worse than death. Um, and if, a fate, if, if the fate is worse than death, uh, then death is preferable. Um, uh, but my view is that uh, you know, so long as humanity could avoid fates worse than death, uh, uh, we've got, it would be meaningful uh, uh, for our lives um, to have children and to see the species continue. Uh, what's the reaction been like um, in terms of talking about or bringing up antinatalism with colleagues or your students? Uh, I'm always curious about this because um, in different social contexts, some people will brush it off, uh, think it's a ridiculous thing to even contemplate. And some people have, some uh, professors have said, no, people have uh, taken this very seriously. Uh, this is, um, some students are, um, you know, are engaging with the arguments. And I was just curious what your experience has been like in, uh, in academia. Um, I mean, it's not a main, uh, it's not a, primary focus of mine. So I haven't gone around, I don't have a, a big sample here, I think. Um, but one thing I'll say is that um, I do know there can be gut sort of uncritical knee-jerk reactions to it. Um, and when I've written letters of recommendation for students and colleagues who do work in the field, uh, up front, I try to say something uh, to motivate the reader to take the issue uh, seriously and not to be offended by it uh, as well. Um, uh, and so often I'll point to um, uh, respects in which uh, the reader would probably be inclined to accept that there are too many human beings, um, at least under certain conditions. Um, uh, uh, perhaps uh, the reader thinks uh, the world is overpopulated um, or perhaps the reader accepts that uh, if a child were going to be born, uh, that would just suffer horribly, uh, uh, and there was no uh, cure for that, no way to avoid it. It would be better not to uh, create that child. So I'll, I'll, you know, I'll start with those kinds of cases and then point out, well, there's a certain logic here. Uh, there are certain uh, principles that philosophers cotton on to, and they try to generalize and see how far uh, these implications go and whether uh, our everyday lives aren't relevantly similar uh, to these kinds of cases. So I'm aware that there can be hostility or dismissal. Um, 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 I haven't received it personally myself, but, um, but it's out there, I'm willing to believe. Personally for you, when it comes to say population ethics and um, the procreation asymmetry from, I think, 
Jeff McMahon uh, had a paper about this, which I think predated Benatar, but Benatar has a different formulation of the asymmetry. Like there's been different iterations of the asymmetry by different philosophers. And I'm just curious, do you think this is a, um, a serious uh, thing to engage with kind of like uh, the non-identity problem or is it more of um, more of just a, a, an odd philosophical puzzle? <laughs> um, well, I think most philosophy and most philosophical puzzles are, pro are important. <laughs> That's probably just my view of philosophy. Um, so I, I think philosophy itself is a meaningful enterprise. Um, I think if we're able to advance our understanding of ourselves and the world philosophically, that's important and it's something that merits pride if we're able to achieve it. Um, so for me, there are very few just unimportant philosophical puzzles. If there's yeah. something that's real philosophical interest, then, then it matters um, that we put our minds to it and try to get things right. Well, let me put it this way. What if there's like an epistemic cause prioritization of things that you, will, you would wrestle with? If uh, So I think, for example, um, uh, the non-identity problem, long-termism, uh, in terms of at least population ethics would be some serious things to think about. Um, and for example, uh, uh, you know, uh, ethics, stuff like with um, uh, transhumanism and abortion uh, rights, stuff like that. If you were, like, would there be like, a, where would you place this? Or like, how, I guess, I don't know what to, how to phrase this, but um, out of all the, uh, all the, areas that one can uh, wrestle with. Um, yeah, well, where would you put that on a spectrum if there, if there was one? Uh, I think it's similar to the kinds of cases you just, you just uh, listed. Um, I mean, at least in Benatar's case, the, the conclusion of, that, of his particular asymmetry argument is that um, you know, all of our lives are ones of net harm, right? None of them have anything uh, 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 that's it. Uh, there might be goods in them of, of a kind, but there are no real advantages. All we, can, you know, all that really, uh, uh, our lives ultimately are uh, are all bad. Um, uh, philosophically, it's important to know whether that's true or not. Um, I don't think it does an, all that much to support antinatalism if antinatalism is the view that it's immoral to create new human lives, uh, because a lot would then turn on just how bad the lives are. So I think it's often permissible to impose burdens on some people, even if they're innocent, uh, if the burdens are relatively slight and if the benefits to other people would be particularly great. Um, and for all that Benatar's asymmetry argument says in itself, uh, that option is open. Uh, knowing that all our lives are ones of net harm, it doesn't tell us how harmful they are. Um, uh, and so there's got to be other work that's done and indeed David does it uh, uh, elsewhere in his work. Uh, to suggest the harm is substantial. Um, but still, uh, it's a good start, uh, as it were, uh, for David if he were able first to get the conclusion that all of our lives are ones of net harm. Uh, yeah. You, you, you know, he obviously had my attention. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> not that I uh, put the workshop together, uh, uh, read his book, uh, his papers, uh, also wrote a critical notice of, of, of the 2006 book. Um, uh, I, I, I spent some time with it. Do you have any advice for people that might be interested in getting involved in philosophy and maybe want to 
um, advance or, or engage with antinatalism philosophy? Sure. Well, listening to podcasts like this is a really good way to start, I would think. Um, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> I mean, it's, Thank it's, you. yeah, I mean, this is a, a nice sort of bite-sized uh, morsel that people can digest and chew on. Um, uh, and so I think, yeah, I think engaging with uh, podcasts and what's available on the internet is, is a perfectly sensible place to start. Um, you know, I myself, ultimately, I believe in books. I think books are important. I've learned a lot from books. It'd be very difficult to be um, uh, adequately educated, at least philosophically, without books. And so ultimately, I would hope that people would read um, uh, carefully. Um, and they're probably going to need to get some training in order to read um, uh, in that way. And so ultimately, uh, they might dabble with, with uh, uh, you know, doing an MPhil or some kind, of, uh, uh, some kind of formal training when it comes to philosophy. Um, but that's a more long-term, more long-term approach. What, what do you see? I mean, you've touched on this a little bit, but what do you see as sort of the future of antinatalism in academia? Like, I, I do definitely see evidence that it is being brought into more classrooms around the world, little by little. Um, I do expect that that will continue, but I'm not really sure. I think you probably have a much greater window into what that might look like in the future. Yeah. I think it will grow. And I, you know, you mentioned earlier that antinatalism doesn't feature in any dictionary that you're aware of. Yeah. And I'm not aware of it featuring in any encyclopedia of philosophy. Um, at least it's not in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is often taken to be uh, the best, uh, 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 the best one out there. Uh, there's no entry on it there yet. Um, I think that's a mistake. I think the field has reached a point where it is its own distinct field, its own, and it's uh, uh, if population ethics can be uh, its own distinct field, well, surely antinatalism is already there. And I think uh, it will uh, continue to receive greater recognition as such as the years go by. I would expect that. So I am a, I'm a huge fan of the SEP. And um, yeah, I was kind of sad that there's no entry for it. There technically is some written under uh, parenthood and procreation. I think it's like a paragraph or two. Um, and there's some in my entry on the meaning of life. In fact, if I remember, I was, I was instructed to address it by the editors. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so I guess that's part of, part of my other question was about engaging with academic philosophy and helping to uh, engage with this material. So for example, I, I probably wouldn't be able to uh, make an entry into the SEP as a non-academic, right? Um, but hypothetically, let's say that's my long-term goal, right? I want to, um, I don't know, work with a professor or uh, have, have that uh, in the SEP. Uh, how, how would that go? How would you go about um, be, getting involved on that path? Uh, look, you would need to publish. I mean, I think that's probably the bottom line, right? Um, so when they're looking for people to write entries on topics, uh, first and foremost, they want to see, well, what has this person produced on the topic? Um, what, you know, you know, they want some evidence of expertise. Um, and the default position for evidence of expertise in academic philosophy is having published uh, material on the topic at least in certain places. 
Um, so you'd want to have made original contributions to these debates, really, uh, in order to be in a good position to contribute an entry. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Would something like, I mean, just out of curiosity, would something like this count, or is there still is there still sort of a, a, a bias, well, I don't want to call it a bias, but I mean, it, a, prefer, a preferential, you know, uh, attitude given towards written work in order to, you know, contribute to something like that? Yeah, I think, yeah, you could, you can call it bias. Um, I mean, but yes, absolutely, there is a, a preference given um, to written work. I mean, I think, you know, what's expected in a publication normally you know, apart from an encyclopedia entry, um, is an original contribution, is saying something, you know, advancing our understanding, getting us to look at a, a debate in a new way. Um, and that's typically not done orally anymore. I mean, there are societies, oral cultures, where that, where that is done routinely. Um, uh, but in the West, it's a, a literate culture, and that's where, the, that's where the arguments and the original positions get spelled out. Um, I think the, the test case, I think, uh, Mark, would be as if you expounded some original position and defended it incredibly well. You didn't do it in writing, though. You did it, uh, you did it online um, uh, for some hours, and you did it consistently. And I think, you know, conceivably, if philosophers took it up, right, if, you know, if they engaged with you in their writing, <laughs> right, they referred to, you know, this, this podcast or this presentation or this lecture, let's call it a lecture, um, that was, was available solely online, um, and people referred to it quite a lot and thought there was some, something really meaty there, uh, then conceivably, you could make a case for yourself. Because I know that there's um, one uh, popular philosopher in antinatalist circles, Julio Cabrera, um, but because he's not an English philosopher, um, I feel like there, there's, a, there's a little bit of a bias there for in the English speaking world, uh, yep. at least globally with journal entries that a lot of philosophers tend not to get highlighted and seems a little unfair. I think that's true, um, and it, it's, it transcends language, of course. It's entire cultures. Um, uh, you know, in my experience, the, you know, Western philosophy has been very parochial and inward-looking for uh, for centuries. Um, I see evidence of that starting to change, but it's been it's been relatively recent. And yeah, because I think one of your books. Um, well, you you also specialize in African philosophy, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I noticed that um, there was just a new entry about, uh, I think it was like South Korean philosophy in the encyclopedia, and I, I'm seeing it expand more. Um, so yeah, those, those are some really great developments, so I'm happy about that. Yeah. All too slow, but I do think, I, I hope they're unstoppable. That would are, be you, nice. are you familiar at all with Julio Cabrera and his... Uh, negative ethics or work in antinatalism at all? Afraid I'm not, no. Well, that's all right. Just curious. Yeah. Before this interview, uh, Thad, you sent us a, a very interesting paper uh, called Does the Lack of Cosmic Meaning Make Our Lives Bad? Um, which Mark and I read together. We enjoyed very much. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about this paper? Okay. So it's a critical, it's part of a, a special issue of a journal that will be devoted to the work of uh, David Benatar. Uh, and one way that uh, David at times defends an antinatalist conclusion um, 
that it would be immoral to create new human lives uh, is by suggesting that uh, our lives would lack two sorts of goods. So on the one hand, uh, we've got the asymmetry argument um, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and other kinds of arguments given to the effect that our lives are, are unhappy uh, or contain quite a lot of harm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there are other places uh, where David will suggest that another reason not to create new human lives is that they would be meaningless. Um, uh, and it's that second consideration that I address in the paper uh, you're talking about. And in particular, uh, uh, David uh, suggests that uh, our lives can have a certain kind of meaning, um, an earthly or terrestrial meaning. So, you know, we can, um, uh, we can have families and we can uh, enjoy music and we can uh, uh, get an education and that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, he doesn't think that's enough. Um, he thinks that in order for our lives to be sufficiently good, and worth creating, we have to have what he calls a cosmic meaning. Um, and by that, uh, he means we have to have some positive influence on the entire universe. And we have to have that positive influence forever. Um, and so there are a couple of ways that might be possible or conceivable. On the one hand, God might exist or could exist. And if God existed and had a plan for the entire physical universe and we were part of the plan um, and God appreciated what we did, well then, uh, and if we, we didn't die, we participated in the plan forever, I think for, for David, uh, that would be one way to have a cosmic meaning. But he suggests uh, another way that our lives could be cosmically meaningful. And that's uh, even if there weren't a God or any spiritual realm, if there were lots of intelligent alien civilizations um, and we engaged with them positively forever, then again, our, our lives could have a kind of cosmic meaning in them. So David's claim is that uh, uh, this sort of cosmic meaning is a lot more important than the earthly meaning. But he points out none of our lives have a cosmic meaning. Uh, he doesn't think there's evidence that God exists. Um, if there are alien civilizations, they're way too far away for us to ever be able to interact with them. Um, and so our, our lives are cosmically meaningless. And for David, that makes our lives bad, uh, worth, you know, sort of, it's worth being sad about our lives or regretting our lives for not having that kind of meaning in them. And so that's an extra reason uh, not to create them in the first place. So that's David's argument. And in the paper, I criticize the argument. Um, 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 I sort of grant him that it would be frightfully nice if we could have a cosmic meaning. I would take it. <laughs> um, I would love for God to exist. Um, I would love to meet intelligent uh, alien civilizations. Um, I think it would be uh, an important kind of meaning. Um, um, however, uh, it's not so clear to me it's more important than the earthly meaning. Um, uh, you know, if I had to choose between meeting aliens on the one hand and ditching my you know, my kids uh, on the other, I don't think I'd ditch my kids. Um, uh, uh, at least on grounds of meaning, I think I'd, I'd stay here. Um, and furthermore, um, uh, in the paper, I suggest that uh, 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 even if cosmic meaning would be much better than earthly meaning, uh, it's not something to regret not having uh, simply because it is impossible. Uh, for humans to have that kind of life. It's impossible for us to live forever. It's impossible uh, for us to uh, make a difference to the entire physical universe. 
And if something is, is impossible in that way, I don't think it should be grounds for regret that we don't have it. Um, so that's, that's in a nutshell, the, uh, the position I'm criticizing and at least two of the criticisms I make. Okay, thank you so much for that. And and uh, just in the interest of time, I'm at, I, I wish we could, uh, could get further into it. But when when can we expect this uh, this article to be released? It should be in February or March to of the of next year, 2022. Okay, Thanks. amazing. Happy inquiry. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. And then I also just wanted to point out, you just recently wrote a book as well with David Benatar, uh, "The Meaning of Life." Uh, is there anything you'd like to say about this uh, work at all? Uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. Um, because, I mean, largely it took a, a conversational tone uh, like we are. Um, so it involved uh, two former students of mine actually uh, uh, interviewing me and also David Benatar about our views about the meaning of life. And it was a dialogue. Um, uh, and we recorded the dialogue, cleaned it up a bit. Uh, and then David and I uh, critically responded to one another's other's uh, uh, positions in writing. Um, and so I think it's, uh, you know, it's the kind of book that might be particularly accessible to those who don't have formal training in philosophy, but are interested in these kinds of issues. I missed the uh, journal that you mentioned the paper will be in. What was it again? Journal of Value Inquiry. Okay, thank you. Thank you so and much for your time, Thad. We really appreciate it so much. It was very nice meeting you both. And congratulations on, you know, this amazing series that's gone on for 50 episodes. That's quite substantial. And um, I think it's something to take great pride in and hence a source of meaning in your lives. Um, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. Dad. Thank you so much. I honestly believe that. And I think subjectivists would be wrong if they thought otherwise. So subjectively true. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being our guest on the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. It really has been an honor to have you as our guest today. You can find the books A Relational Moral Theory and Meaning in Life by Thaddeus Metz on Amazon.com, as well as many of his papers on philpapers.org. Links below. Thank you for listening to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. This has been Amanda Oldfansugnik and Mark J. Maharaj. You can find us on the YouTube channels Antinatal Wolf and Question Mark Philosophy, respectively. Keep up with my daily antinatalist news updates at Antinatal News on Twitter. Please follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at exploringantinatalism at gmail.com. The podcast can be listened to on the YouTube channel Exploring Antinatalism podcast, as well as Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Buzzsprout, SoundCloud, Stitcher, RSS Feed, and so many other platforms. Our website, www.exploringantinatalism.com, was designed by the amazing Visions Noirs. Please visit Visions Noirs at www.bionoir.com and also follow him on Instagram. Logo art by the incredible Life Sucks. Please subscribe to his YouTube channel, and if you would perhaps like to purchase one of the Exploring Antinatalism t-shirts by Life Sucks, then go check out his Etsy at www.etsy.com slash shop slash Life Sucks Publishing. And proudly announcing, our theme music was graciously provided by I Doubt It. I Doubt It is an alum of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, so if you'd like to go listen to his episode, it's episode four, and also make sure to check out our collaborative project together with our friends Evil WV, The Right to No Longer Exist, which includes the podcast, The Right to No Longer Exist, a Right to Die podcast. All the best, and bye for now.